and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton, and with my good friend Jack Rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Munn. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is closetalking.com. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are with you again for day four of Sonnet Week. It is National Poetry Month of 2021. We just talked about the lovely obsessive lover Petrarch from the Italian Renaissance. And now we are jumping forward a couple hundred years to the English Renaissance for none other than William Shakespeare. Mm, More William than you can shake a spear at. Boom. Love it. Love to see it. Love that guy. All yes. those good plays. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, he's William Shakespeare. He doesn't need that much of an introduction. He was around, he was born in 1564. He died in 1616. So there's that. Um, born in April. We, his birthday was very recent. Oh. Yeah, another National Poetry Month baby. Well, happy birthday um happy birth month but uh yeah he he's well known for his plays obviously but he also is quite well known for his sonnets yeah he he helped even create what is now often referred to as the shakespearean sonnet also sometimes called the english sonnet still has 14 lines um it's still roughly the same meter you know the old iambic pentameter, ba 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 ba. That's exactly how it goes. That's, <laughs> that's, that's how you do it. If there's one thing to know about William Shakespeare, it's that he loved iambic pentameter. Yeah, um, he, he went for it. But the chief difference is that while Petrarch had his kind of eight line, volta six line with his octave and then his sestet, Shakespeare had three quatrains, three four line stanzas. Uh, and then a closing couplet. And the big Volta often happened going into that couplet. Another big trope. So, I mean, Shakespeare, he's still killing it with the love tropes. He's got many lovers that he's writing to. Um, Heavily influenced by Petrarch in that way. Like definitely one of the things he takes from 
Petrarchan sonnets is that that love longing thing. Yes, exactly. And also the the kind of sense of contradictions and those those sorts of things. Um, another big trope that I don't know if it started around this time, but certainly he was an exemplar and many in the English Renaissance were known for this was the kind of carpe diem idea of things like seizing the day, but often how that played out in our predominantly male dominated English Renaissance canon is like, hey, one whom I love, uh, (laughs) I'm going to die soon. You're going to die soon. Let's get it on because of that, basically. Um, Yeah, it's... uh... It's a strong theme. It's and particularly, strong. I mean, there's there's been quite a bit of interesting scholarship on Shakespeare about whether he is writing to men or women yes. in, in these sonnets, which is a, an excellent point to bring up. That it's like, hey, potential love companion. <laughs> but I think, you know, and as we were talking about the uh, in the second episode with the Eduardo Corral poem, having the big turn in a closing couplet really changes like the dynamic of the poem a lot. And I was thinking about what Monica Yoon was saying about the Petrarchan and that kind of disproportionate hangover thing. There's a lot of like tidiness and like a conclusive nature that happens when when you have this really unbalanced, like 12 lines of like a similar idea and two lines of the the new idea. And yeah, I think there's a good, there's a very good poem it's the Shakespeare poem I know the best of them all because I wrote a, my first college <laughs> paper on it. You know, I wrote my first college paper on Owen Wister's The Virginian. Wow. <laughs> so I don't even know what that is, but. Well, I'll keep you in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, but yeah, this is Sonnet 73 of Shakespeare. And yeah, here we go. Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. You can really feel how that couplet puts a button on it. Yeah. Even if you can sort of pick out other places for a turn to be happening in the poem, like the you know, we've you have particularly, but we've both talked about in in other episodes where we're talking about non-sonnet poems often but like just loud form and i feel like the shakespearean innovations in the sonnet make the form a lot louder 
Yeah, like, absolutely. like when when you hear a Shakespearean sonnet, you just feel like, oh yeah, the iambic pentameter, the rhythm of that really drives it home. And then having that last couplet, as soon as you hear it, you think, oh yeah, okay, got it. You know, yeah. there, there's rhymes in the rest of the poem, obviously, but also the rhyme scheme is much more metronomic than you have in Petrarch, where it's like A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, like, ooh, you know, it's still <laughs> present, but it's, it doesn't hit you quite as hard as, you know, essentially the rhyme scheme of like a pop song, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, you know? Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, and especially that GG, that closing couplet that rhymes, you know, in the Petrarch, the last six lines are braided together uh, in their rhymes in some way. Um, but this is like, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Um, that strong and long, which are totally new rhymes. And then you know, it's a rhyming couplet, so they're really bound together. But yeah, and then also just, you know, that is really the turn, um, you know, that this poem is basically the three quatrains are just different ways of saying, I'm getting old and I'm dying. <laughs> like that time of year you see in me, like the fall when there's <laughs> yellow leaves or no leaves and there's no birds singing on them. Like that's the first quatrain. The second quatrain's like, you see the twilight of the day after sunset. And then it's like black night is coming. And then in the, in the third quatrain, it's, it's, a, it's a dying fire, right? You know, and it's also a, a fire that's consumed, consumed with its own youth. And then, and then it's like this thou perceivest, like <laughs> you see me getting old. <laughs> like it, it's obvious at this point. Like, there's no hiding it. You, you, you get the idea. Like my hair's yeah. gray. I got wrinkles. I, Come on. I, what else yeah. do I got? What, what, what do you, what do you want from me? It's, I, it's not, it's all of my face. It's all of my body. You get it. Yeah. I've said it once. I've said it twice. I've said it three times. Just love me. All right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm old. Love me. Wah. Yeah, exactly. It's a real uh, winter's tale of a poem there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Ugh, Shakespeare. One thing that I noticed way back when that I still find interesting is that, you know, we talked about the iambic pentameter. And so pretty much this follows it to the T where you have the ba 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 you know, that time of year thou mayest in me behold. And that's, you know, and I say this every time, but it's like the meter is natural. You, you don't shouldn't have yourself to... pushed to emphasize it as you're reading it. It's not it... like essential in the reading. Exactly. When yellow leaves or none or few do hang, um, you know, that's all. But then there's a few times when, you know, the end, basically the last line of the first quatrain and the last line of the second quatrain begin with stressed syllables. So you have that time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. And then we go back to the iambic in me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night 
doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. Then that doesn't happen again in the last one. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. And then there's a sense of a this thou perceivest. This is somewhat stressed, I think, a little bit. But one thing that I that I think is taught poorly about meter and about rhythm generally is like it's a pattern, but the pattern works in part to be broken at particular times. And when it's broken, it draws the attention to that. Like in this case, in part, it signals the end of the quatrain to some extent where there's like bare ruined choirs, you know, we're getting to the end of that thought a bit. Um, it also draws attention, of course, to the, the image, which I think is a beautiful, like bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang to think of a, you know, autumn tree that has little leaves on it as a, a ruined choir is very I, beautiful to me. That's my favorite part of the whole poem. Yeah. Is yeah. that like that turn of phrase and that image? Yeah. It's still like incredibly fresh, like to me where mm -hmm. it's like, um, and then similarly, like the idea of that, of the death second self in that second quatrain of like black knight being the second self of death or something like that is very striking to me in my like silly little paper that I wrote many years ago. I had some argument that he was like, the poem was like resisting <laughs> death through its like use of the stressed syllable. It's like, I'm not, I'm holding out, but then like by the third quatrain, he's kind of, he's not really holding out much more, which I, I don't know about that, but those moments um, are very, they're also like the big sum up images of those two quatrains to some extent, you know what I mean? Where like bare ruined choirs like really encapsulates that first quatrain and death's second self of him becoming the knight, you know, or whatever. Like Batman. Uh, like Batman. He, he is the knight. Yes. That's the spoiler. Shakespeare <laughs> he is was, Batman. He was Batman all along. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't know this. William Shakespeare, anagram of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> We're really uncovering it all on this this year podcast. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, on a serious note, I particularly like uh, what you said about meter and how it's often taught. Because I feel like the, the way that I think about it is like, oftentimes meter is taught as though it is the workshop. Like it's the space in which you have to work. Like the meter is immutable and you go there and then you do whatever you do, but it remains when really it's just a tool in the workshop. Yes. I really agree with that. And I think that this poem is a great example of that. Cause it's like, it's Shakespeare. If there's going to be any more, you know, exalted figure in English literature to hold up as like the exemplar of, and he did it right by sort of a stodgy, establishment it's it's gonna be him and here he is being like eh, you know i kind of do what i feel it's like most, <laughs> it's mostly there but like sometimes you just gotta get in there it's like i don't get a wow with it mm, wow, Bill, that's what they call me Ooh. you know <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's also, you know, and we, we talked about it already, but it's a really good example of that final Volta closing couplet. That's just like, you know, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. And it also has that beautiful kind of love and leave in the last line where it's, it's similar it's not quite a rhyme, but it's that internal love leave. And they're kind of linked together in a way, which is kind of the argument. And it's in that, like, the danger, of course, I think, of the louder Shakespearean sonnet is that it's such a big ending, right? It's like, it's it's such a, and now I conclude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean we've uh, talked quite a bit about like pressure in fact you did an entire special episode on pressure in poetry and there's the meta pressure of like when you know a poem is famous and you have to interact with it <laughs> and then you're like well this doesn't live up to the fact that everybody talks mm. about it which i think can be the case just generally with the shakespearean sonnets yeah. but particularly within the poem itself having that couplet at the end those last two lines end up structurally having tons of pressure on them um just to kind of like perform after whatever came before yes exactly and i think at least like one of the reasons why i feel like this poem works so well is because there's that contradiction in the big conclusion where it's this to love what is going to leave and just like to love what is dying or fading away or what must go and it's also, you know, it's a it's a powerful idea that that goes beyond this sonnet, and I think is often has you know universal resonance with with any with anyone. But I think the linking of those two things of like loving and therefore like wanting someone so much with the idea of that person being, you know, ephemeral and fading away or dying or whatever, I think like makes the turn hold up withstand the pressure that it, it's been it's under because of the form i mean part of what we're getting at also with you know we are jumping forward a fair amount of time but part of what's happening is that the sonnet is now like traveling and it is entering new languages because the sonnet did not originate in english and it didn't originate in england but over the course of the first several hundred years it did move across europe and to England and we're seeing it change in its structure as it makes those travels, but it also partially through association with major figures like Shakespeare, but also coming out of the Italian Renaissance, which then kind of, you know, in a very kind of simplistic view of European history begins to undergird a particular kind of Western European cultural tradition. It then takes on a lot of weight as a literary form. And we see that weight accumulating around this time to the point that, and this is, you know, maybe 80 ish years, 90 ish years after Shakespeare, when Peter the Great comes to power in Russia and he institutes all these Westernizing reforms and starts to outlaw folk practices of certain types um, one of the the moves he makes is to encourage uh, his you know literary uh, elites to start writing sonnets because it is is viewed as this kind of Western form, and so there are other writers, not just Shakespeare, who are in the mix around this time and a little bit after in this kind of 1580s to 1780s, which is a huge spread of time, but like that era 
there's there's a number of folks who are who are working in the sonnet in English or in Western Europe who are beginning to build up some of what I think is stereotypically associated with the sonnet as a genre where or as a form where it's like it is this very highbrow fancy academy kind of poetry which is something that I you know we've talked about how contemporary sonnets are in conversation with that aspect of its tradition and it's not to say it wasn't there before but I think that this is where the contemporary reference points for a lot of that in addition to just the sonnet's longevity this is where a lot of those reference points are concentrated people like Shakespeare or Milton or you know this is where those those cats are kind of hanging out yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot of heavy hitters that come along with Shakespeare that really, and they all take the sonnet very seriously and write really great sonnets. Milton, George Herbert, we talked about one yes, of his poems. Absolutely. John Donne, who is also a contemporary of Shakespeare, uh, who is one of my favorites. And he gets at, I think, another really interesting part of the sonnet and explores another aspect of love in a way, which is a kind of like the religious love or love of God, um, but has a really intense relationship. And there's just this one, he has a bunch of sonnets called Holy Sonnets. Um, and there's one that is just like really amazing. And also like, I think, very visceral and to think that it was you know written several hundred years ago it's it's i don't know well here you go so this is one of john dunn's holy sonnets batter my heart three-personed god for you as yet but knock breathe shine and seek to mend that i may rise and stand overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly, I love you and would be loved fain but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Never shall be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. Yeah, which I think, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, people have pointed out there's a kind of masochistic, you know, wanting to be abused and beaten and battered by God is, is kind of a lot of what this uh, poem is sort of expressing. And, and also um, an interesting, you know, element of the sonnet that, you know, within that contradiction and within that has that also like being trapped feeling, which, which is another sort of common trope that is explored in many sonnets and and really you know as in our episode with um Dr. Hollis Robbins really is is explored much more i think like potently by um black american poets 
you know, later on, but still, you know, you, it's this poem is a, is a great example of this paradox of, you know, reason your viceroy and me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet, dearly, I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chased, except you ravish me. So there's just this great, like, really interesting imprisonment and paradox of kind of desire and reason and faith. And that's all kind of like happening in this poem that I think is really interesting. And it's also, it actually shows another dimension of the, the Shakespearean sonnet as a form that came out a little bit in the, the one we talked about, but I think gets at it more here is that, okay, so on the one hand, you have your big volta at the end, but then on the other hand, you have three quatrains and you can, you know, if you think of it like an argument, you can advance your point quatrain by quatrain. Um, and so John Donne is like, the master at this of just like wrestling with thought and argument in a very passionate way, but also rigorous way in his poems, which I think is like really interesting to me. But you know, this first stanza, like batter my heart, three person God is first just the articulation of that desire, which gets, which starts out with a bang. Um, and then just has these marvelous lines that I can't believe were written when they were because they break with that iambic pentameter of like the, you know, that I may rise and stand like, okay, if I get up, like overthrow me and then and bend your force to break, blow, burn and make me new. And so that's like the first quatrain and the, the next two continue that thought, but then they kind of, they introduce new elements, which is something that he is really good at. Like I like a, a usurped town to another do labor to admit me. So he compares himself to this town that's been, I guess, like taken over and we try to let you in. And, you know, we're having, <laughs> we're having some trouble with that basically. And then the third quatrain, like, despite all that, even though it's tough for me to admit you, like I do love you and I would love to be loved back, but I'm betrothed unto your enemy. So you got to divorce me and then break that knot and then take me to you. And then you got to lock me up, <laughs> uh, imprison me. And then that leads into the kind of final couplet of like, for I accept you enthrall me, never will be free, which has that, these are the core kinds of contradictions of like, I can only be free if I am locked up with you basically. And you imprisoning me, nor ever chased except you ravish me. So like the only way I can be chased and of good faith and all that is if you, God, are ravishing me. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty sexy poem, I have yeah, to say. It's pretty hot stuff. I yeah. liked, I like thinking about it as advancing an argument, though, because you do feel that happening and you can then... I particularly like it because it just gives you another energy to trace through the sonnet in addition to identifying like, oh, where's the Volta and how does the last couplet play in? Like the Volta does come in with 
yet dearly I love you. There's a yet. It lets you know. It's sort of like all this stuff. And yet, or but, it's like signpost. Here's where the volt is coming. Here's the difference. Um, but at the same time, if you see that as the next step in the argumentation of the quatrains, like that becomes a whole other feel to bring into the reading of it, which is definitely neat. And then it kind of leads into that last couplet a little differently. Exactly. Dunn is such a explicitly like he he's like, take me to you, imprison me for I accept you enthrall me, never shall be free. Um, like that for like, because thusly it's present i think in all really good shakespeare sonnets where there's that sort of advancing of things but um dunn does a really great job at like making that really clear and and i love i love this one in part just because it's so intense and it really gets at this i don't know another thing that we talk about a lot is just that profane and divine being tied up together um, and this is like, just like such a great example of that. I think the particular way, like the directness with which it addresses that is part of what makes it feel a lot more contemporary. There's work that has grappled with that for a long time. I mean, there's very classically like Renaissance paintings and statues that are clearly addressing this. But I feel like for this, where it's just language, the directness of the language, particularly in that last couplet is like, whoa, I don't associate that with hundreds of years ago. Like, I don't, that's not how people talked about God then, right? Right? I yeah. guess it was. Whoa. You know, like, it really kind of is part of what draws you back there and is like, oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. I thought this was Puritan times. What's going on here? Hmm. <laughs> No, yeah, I know. But yeah, there's there's that whole like cadre of poets and and then it kind of advances. I mean, the next big crop that I can think of is is like the the romantic poets, you know, a couple hundred years later, I guess, or like, you know, with Wordsworth and stuff. And he also has many great sonnets. And so it it does kind of which I think also importantly tracks pure power of England and its development eventually into an empire and expansion of that alongside that English literature from this sort of early time um, has really invested itself in the sonnet tradition. And as, you know, and that's like why it, it also comes to the US in the way that it does. I think there's, there's definitely like the kind of the, the political history of England and the English developing eventual empire. And, and having sort of a literature of empire and a cultural tradition that becomes like, of course we're superior, look at, we've got Shakespeare, <laughs> and he fucking rocked like crazy. <laughs> Better yes. than anyone you've ever had. Hmm. Yes. Right, because I mean... You know, like, yeah, it, it's tied up in the same kind of, imperial project at a certain point the same way that like american exceptionalist rhetoric has its own cultural figures associated with it or you know who those who wish to advance american exceptionalist will say like but we've got x y and z like you know steven spielberg or like whatever i don't know <laughs> <laughs> some some great yeah. american artist uh you know like 
yeah ours Jackson is the best yeah, sure. yeah like ours is the best shit basically um and and that is absolutely like these guys because they are basically all guys kind of slot into that yeah although we will link to one of the first great crowns of sonnets which is a linked sequence of sonnets where the last line becomes the first line of the next sonnet and it continues in a kind of crown shape so that the 14th sonnet <laughs> slash line is the first line of the first sonnet so it's a full circle lady mary roth uh wrote a great crown of sonnets that i highly recommend and yeah she was one of the the few and prominent uh women at this time so that's that's important <laughs> definitely um but yeah and we you know we touched on it a little bit with this last poem but we've talked a lot about sonnets as having to do with love but even at this point and certainly as we progress closer to the present sonnets have to do with a lot of different topics and so our next episode will be exploring the the wide reach of sonnet subject matters yes the the vast array of topics that the sonnet can encompass beyond just love or yes. god <laughs> or god love as may be the case i mean it's basically god love it's even, pretty uh, even laura of petrarch it's like she's an angel i'm just saying i'm just saying